In our study of Hebrews, we saw that persecution and even the ordinary trials of life can cause some to rethink their theology. You know, if our faith is costing us too much, or at least it seems to be costing us too much, the simplest remedy is to change our faith. If believing that Jesus is the only way to God puts us at odds with the popular thinking of the day, we can find acceptance by simply changing our thinking. Changing our thinking about God, however, can have eternal consequences. And by trying to go back to a more socially acceptable faith, the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews were losing everything made possible by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. An eagerly embraced theological misunderstanding, thinking that the old way to God was just as good as the new way, was leading to a defection from the Christian faith. And the author of Hebrews wrote to address that devastating defection. But you know, even if theological misunderstandings don't lead to a defection from the faith, they can still lead to defections from a productive, God-honoring life. And that is what prompted the Apostle Paul to write the brief letter to which we come today. Second Thessalonians. Now, it may seem strange that we're going to study Second Thessalonians without first looking again at First Thessalonians. But we studied First Thessalonians for a second time back in 2004. We haven't studied Second Thessalonians since 1987. Both letters are among the earliest writings in the New Testament, having quite possibly been written in the spring and late summer of 50 A.D. The only letter thought to have been written earlier is Paul's letter to the Galatians. And Paul wrote both letters to the Thessalonians shortly after founding the church in Thessalonica while still on his second missionary journey. He had gone into Macedonia at the behest of a vision instructing him to leave Asia Minor and venture into Europe. And he, along with Silas, Luke, and Timothy, began their ministry on the European continent in Philippi. After baptizing Lydia and the Philippian jailer and their households and establishing a church in Philippi, Paul, Silas, and Timothy left town at the urging of the authorities. They traveled by foot a hundred miles to Thessalonica, a large city of approximately 200,000, and for three Sabbaths gave evidence to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. After losing favor with the Jewish authorities, they apparently remained in town for a couple of months and established a church made up of believing Jews, God-fearing Greeks, and a number of leading women. When opposition to their success and teaching became violent, the brethren sent Paul and Silas away by night, keeping Timothy with them a little longer. 
When Paul and Silas arrived in Berea, some 50 miles away, they immediately went to the synagogue to preach. The Jews there were more noble-minded than the Jews in Thessalonica. And they began searching the Scriptures to see if what they had to say was so. When the Jews in Thessalonica heard that many of them had subsequently accepted Christ, they went to Berea and stirred up mobs against Paul and Silas. New believers from Berea then accompanied Paul to the sea and then by ship some 300 miles to Athens. Timothy, who had rejoined them in Berea, once again stayed behind, this time with Silas. While in Athens, Paul addressed the philosophers in the Areopagus with limited success. When Timothy joined him in Athens, Paul sent him back to Thessalonica because he was worried about the church there. Paul then traveled on to Corinth. And when Timothy and Silas met up with him there, the letters to the church in Thessalonica were written a couple months apart. In the first letter, Paul cautiously addressed some problems and misunderstandings that were beginning to arise in the church. In the second letter, he gets more explicit. The young church was a good church. But as we will see, it was also a theologically confused church. And their theologically, theological confusion had led some in the church to lead undisciplined, unproductive lives. Paul's letter opens by recognizing that the church in Thessalonica was basically a good church. But as we progress through the letter, we'll note that it was also a confused church, a church under fire, a beloved church, a praying church, and a disciplined church. I think this is going to be a good study for us. I think we'll be able to see ourselves reflected in this little letter. We begin by noting that the church in Thessalonica was a good church. One for which Paul could honestly give thanks. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, first three verses. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Paul begins his letter by sending greetings from all three missionaries who had brought the gospel to Thessalonica, himself, Silvanus or Silas, and Timothy. Through their efforts and, of course, through the providence of God the Father and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, they had become a church. A church in the city of Thessalonica, the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. And through God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, they had become the recipients of grace and peace. The grace that had made them acceptable in the sight of God and the peace that resulted from such grace. Something Paul affirms 
and praise they will continue to experience. He then says that the writers of the letter ought always to give thanks for the Thessalonians. Now, that may seem a little strange that they ought to do so. But saying they ought to be thankful for them doesn't suggest they were reluctant to do so. Paul is simply noting that thankfulness is the obvious and fitting response when a young church's faith and love is growing. You know, in spite of the problems that would have to be addressed, Paul was very thankful for some of the things that he saw taking place in the Thessalonian church, particularly their faith and their love. Their faith in Christ was growing. He says it was greatly enlarged. I think it means their faith was reaching into more and more areas of their life all the time. Their faith had moved beyond a religious expression and into their daily living. They were learning how to trust Christ more and more every day for everything. And they were growing in their love for one another. They were really becoming family. They were caring for one another's needs and sharing in one another's joys. They didn't just share a pew on Sunday. In fact, they didn't have pews. They didn't have a church. A building anyway. They were the church. They were becoming an identifiable body of Christ by loving each other. For as Jesus had said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, for this, Paul couldn't help but be thankful. And he spoke proudly of them. Verses 4 through 10. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. Paul was proud of the church in Thessalonica. And he wasn't afraid to say so. Now, he didn't do so to enhance his resume as an evangelist and a church planter, but to simply express the pride of a father for his children in the faith. He didn't hesitate to tell all the churches how proud he was of the Thessalonians, especially because they were persevering in the midst of persecutions and afflictions. 
You know, Paul had pretty much been run out of Thessalonica. So he knew firsthand what the church there was going through. He knew they were facing discrimination, if not outright persecution, for their newly found faith. But in spite of their persecutions and afflictions, or more likely because of them, their faith was growing. They understood what they were enduring served only to confirm their standing with God. That the world in which they lived would not have reacted against them if they had been like everyone else in their society. I hope you heard that. In fact, I'm going to say it again. They understood that what they were enduring served only to confirm their standing with God. That the world in which they lived would not have reacted against them if they had been like everyone else in their society. They were proving themselves worthy of the kingdom of God by their alienation from the world. They were learning by personal experience what the Apostle John would later teach, that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. By willingly enduring the animosity of the world, they were renouncing Love for the world. They were confirming the righteous judgment of God concerning the world. Judgment that might not always be obvious now, but will one day be obvious to all. Someday, God would repay with affliction all who were afflicting them. And someday they would discover the truth of what J.B. Phillips so beautifully states when paraphrasing Romans 8, 18, in my opinion, whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future God has planned for us. What an amazing scripture. An amazing scripture. God would one day give eternal relief to those who were afflicted in this life because of their faith. And that day would come when the Lord Jesus returns with His mighty angels in flaming fire, when He deals out retribution to those who don't know God and to those who do not obey the Lord Jesus. And just in case anyone questions the righteousness of God in judging those who don't know Him, let me remind you of what Paul has to say in Romans 1, 18-21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. 
every man knows enough about God to honor Him as God. But most choose not to do so. And even most of those who know about Jesus choose not to obey Him. And those who choose not to enter into a saving relationship with the God they know to exist and who refuse to obey the Lord Jesus will pay the penalty of eternal separation from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. But the Thessalonians, who believed the testimony of Paul and his associates, would share in the glory of God when Christ returns, and they would marvel at Him. The believers in Thessalonica knew and had a basic understanding of these things. And their confidence in the promises of Christ enabled them to endure times of persecution and affliction. As we'll soon see, they did have some basic misunderstandings about the second coming. And their theological misunderstandings had a direct effect on some of the choices they were making in life. But Paul was still proud of them. And he prayed for them. Verses 11 and 12. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. How does anyone become worthy of God's call in their life? Quite simply, they don't. They don't. You know, some seem to think they can't answer God's call until they make themselves acceptable in His sight, until they clean up their life and make amends for the bad things they've done. What they failed to realize is that it was while mankind was still sinful that Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to become worthy of His sacrifice before He offered Himself. In Romans 5.8, Paul says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's impossible for us to live a life that merits God's invitation to enter into a fellowship with Him. So God offered it to us before we could think ourselves good enough to earn it. And Paul knew there was no way the Thessalonians could make themselves worthy of what God had given to them in Christ. So let's look again at what it was he was praying for. He said, we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling. 
He didn't say he was praying that they would make themselves worthy of their calling. He said he was praying that God would count them worthy of their calling. Big difference. We can't actually make ourselves worthy. But through Christ, we can be counted as worthy. As our Savior, His righteousness covers our sin. And He makes us appear as righteous in God's eyes. And then, as we live lives of loving gratitude for what He has done, God knows we were worth it. Our objective in life is to therefore assure God that His gift is appreciated, that we understand the cost of His grace, and that by His grace we are doing our best to live lives that reflect that gratitude. It's our heart's desire to live good lives. Lives that honor Him. It's our desire to live in a way that demonstrates the power of our faith. Power to overcome the temptations that come from living in a fallen world. Paul knew that the Thessalonians were committed to living such lives. They were proving it daily by the way they were handling persecutions and afflictions. He could therefore confidently pray that the name of Jesus be glorified through them. That in spite of fundamental differences of opinion, the world in which the Thessalonians lived would be forced to acknowledge the character and integrity of those who named Jesus as Lord. And he could pray that the Christians themselves would glory in the relationship they had with their Creator made possible by His Son. A relationship that enabled them to be counted as worthy of His grace. The church in Thessalonica was a good church. It was a church for which Paul could be thankful it was a church about which he could speak proudly. And it was a church for which he could pray confidently. Obviously, I'm not the Apostle Paul. But I do share his sentiments. And I've been the preacher of a church in Chatham for nearly 40 years. Chatham Christian Church is a church for which I am very thankful. A church about which I speak proudly and a church I pray for. Confident that through us, God will continue to bring glory to His Son. May He always count us as worthy of his calling. Let's stand.